Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. That's sort of the start of a new year. We're probably a bit past that actually, to be honest. Always a good time to be thinking ahead and planning. We've had such good intentions. Maybe we've dropped them already. Time to think a little bit more about what we're going to do. But also it's not just as simple as picking a few stocks or ETFs and off you go. So today I'm talking with Glenn James from My Millennial Money. Now we're going to talk about My Millennial Money in a minute, whom I originally met when he was a financial planner and I was working in an allied field. Glenn is now the host of one of Australia's most successful finance podcasts. He talks to thousands, tens of thousands of people to help them with their finances across a whole variety of topics, much broader than you might imagine. And it's very cool to have him here to discuss how he came to move into a different way of helping people with their money and what he's learned along the way. Glenn, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Gemma, thanks for having me on your show. And I know a lot of my listeners also listen to your show. So hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny field, podcasting, because it's it's not really competitive. It's everyone kind of transitions across multiple, right? Yeah, it's great. So Glenn, and the funniest part is we knew each other a long mm. time before we came to do what we're currently doing now. And you mm. started out, and I'm going to say, I believe you started out as a financial planner, but maybe you did something before that. Yeah, so I actually... Well, I, the long and the short of it is I left school early and did a apprenticeship in telecommunications. Uh, so like office phone systems and all that fun stuff. Um, I wasn't really, uh, I'm not an intellectual person. I've got a high level of practical intelligence, but I knew that longer term, I didn't want to work with my hands or my body. I needed to work with my mind. So, and I'd always had an interest in personal finance. So Towards the end of my apprenticeship, I actually started studying a diploma of financial services, financial planning. And then I think I was like 20 or 21 at the time and then joined a financial advice firm and just started at the bottom in client services and, you know, worked my way up and continued studying and then became a financial advisor, which I think there's a myth there about financial advisors and what they do. I think a good great, awesome financial advisor is a really good listener and a really good project manager. And the hygiene factor of knowing legislation and rules, that's always got to be there. So I really enjoyed the um, yeah the project management side of it. Like you get a client come in and their goals and it's like, okay, let's work together. Let me keep you accountable. Let's put a strategy in place to do that. And then fast forward, I had my own business. And then uh, in 2018, I effectively sold that business and got out of face-to-face financial advice um, to go down this online road. That's the too long, didn't read story of my career to date. (laughs) I love it though. And I do, uh, financial advice is such an interesting field. I think particularly when people see a young financial planner, there's a bit of an assumption that you can't help them much. Having briefly worked in a client-facing role, but mostly behind the scenes, I loved the access you get mm. in people's extraordinary situations. It was so fascinating. You learn so much. I found it so educational and it wasn't always particularly difficult to give them advice and put them in a better situation. Mm. And I remember because I was, you know, into starting my own, I started my own business at 25. 
you know, 27, 28 year old. And even at that time, I, I went and got some orthodontics braces just for some, I call it housekeeping that I always wanted to do on my teeth. They weren't that bad. And I just always remember when the receptionist in the office that I was leasing would say, oh, hey, so-and-so is here, or we'll just make a name up. Jeff and Judy are here and, you know, they're pre-retirees and, you know, in their mid sixties and you'd always go around the corner, say, hi, I'm Glenn. And they get the look like, who is this child? And then you know, by the time you walk through the process, they absolutely think you're amazing and um, all that confidence and that look that they did have has gone. And then the so it's that first look, no confidence. Who's this child? And then, you know, by the end of it, you know, some of these clients had really great ongoing relationships with and were really able to help in terms of a strategy and uh, investment selection and, and whatnot for their uh, retirement. It's such an interesting one, but a lot of financial planners, in fact, the vast majority of them are older and they're mm. very much about building building a business. You know, most mm. financial planners are not employees per se. They're building a small business, mm. even inside a larger firm. So what prompted you to get out and move into podcasting? Yeah, so it's really, when you look back, it's so interesting. Like I always wanted to be a radio host as a teenager. <laughs> know why I'm just I was really interested in oh, it'd be cool to be a radio host and so that was, that was always in the background I was always interested in business I was always interested in media and computers and cameras and all that and when we fast forward now like that's what I do I run my own business with cameras and microphones and tech and so that was kind of on a human level I'm doing what I my passion was in my teens but what led me down this road in 2017 uh Australia actually didn't have a mainstream personal finance podcast by Aussies for Aussies. And I went to a conference in the United States called FinCon, the biggest financial influencers conference. And I was really encouraged. And I remember landing in Sydney and and I'm like, oh, I, I'm going to do this. And I, I was on the runway in Sydney, like taxiing up to the gate and I'd text six people like, hey, you want to buy a business? Because I really wanted to do something online. But and so it's kind of, you know, all roads lead to Rome. So there was that factor that I had a really successful business. Uh, at the time, I was on the board uh, of the Association of Financial Advisors, uh, won some industry awards. So for me, I was like, okay, I'm at the top. The view's great. But it's, I need a new hill, need a new mountain to climb. But then the other side of the coin, most people uh, that would come into my office in suburbia they would say, oh, we need some financial advice. And you sit down with them like, well, you know what? You need a budget. You need to get out consumer debt. You need an emergency fund. You need to get your wills and your estate planning sorted. <laughs> then we can talk about investing for the future. So it was this thing where it's like, you don't need advice, quote unquote. You just need some basic money help. And then we can take you on a journey. And I had an, an online course at the time. I think it was like $80 or $100. And it's still up today. It's called the Glenn James Spending Plan. It's now free. But I would tell people, I'm like, I can help you with this budgeting thing. But you've got two options. You can pay me $3,000 and we'll sit down face to face and I'll coach you through. Or basically the DIY do-it-all-yourself model uh, online. Either way, I get paid. Uh, we can do face to face or um, you can DIY. So that really was the catalyst of like, far out. So many people just need this basic stuff. I'm sick of telling 
every friend of a friend and, oh, Glenn, can I sit down with you and talk about money and help? I was just like, and then the personal career stuff, I was like, I need a new challenge. There was no Aussie podcast that I could see that was personal finance for Aussies by Aussies. And I'm like, I'm going to do it. So I took a big risk and went all in and started uh, at the time, My Millennial Money. And as at this week, the first week of February, the podcast, we've now changed the name to This Is Money. Uh, so This Is Money was born and in 2018, and I just decided I will do one episode every single week at least for one year. And then if there's still signs of life, I'll keep doubling down. And because I was self-funded, it was a bit of a risk, like lived off my own savings. I didn't have to worry about trying to get sponsors and monetize it. It was just the focus was on good content, which that's subjective because some of the first episodes were rubbish because I didn't know how to be a podcaster. And yeah, we're here now. I love it. Uh, we have the same privilege here because obviously we're backed by NAB, so I don't have to worry about monetizing this. They mm. just kind of provide it as a service. Uh, and I think it must be quite difficult to be worried about the financials right from the beginning. So I did wonder whether you maintained your business while you were doing the podcast. It's interesting that you went all in. Yeah, well, I, I did for the first, um, we launched it in April 18. And I sold the business and exited by the end of that year. So there was a good six months where I actually rented a, an office next door to my office and turned that into a studio. Uh, and it was really cool talking points, like could show clients, oh, this is a studio, we're doing a podcast. Uh, but it, it wasn't before long where I'm like, there is signs of life here. I need to go all in. And that's when I um, exited advice fully. I found it so interesting. And I think because we've come from similar backgrounds where we mm. dealt with people in an advice context, which is very highly regulated. And as you say, the vast majority of people don't have super complex needs mm. once they, you know, if they're just starting out. So let's start with the first question. You've just changed the brand yep. as of now. Mm -hmm. You've got tens of thousands of listeners. Are they all millennials? Is that part of the, the, uh, well, yeah, the brand they're, change? They're not. Um, and the reason I chose my millennial money back in 18 was you got to remember in 2018, the whole corporate world and marketing and all that was about the millennial. It really was. And I'm just like, Oh, millennial, my millennial, yeah, money. Yeah. Let's go with that. And it really was great. And we attracted it because at the time millennials were basically all in their twenties, a little bit older, maybe 24 to 40. I don't know. Um, so yeah, the, the reason it was millennial money, cause I'm a millennial. I speak millennial. It was a popular word back in 2018. Uh, but now fast forward, we've got listeners in their late teens and early seventies. We've got every generation listening and I really wanted to change because one, the word millennials dead. And now secondly, um, it doesn't reflect the actual audience. And it's like so, when someone heard that we rebranded to this is money, they were like, Oh, thank you so much. I found it hard to forward episodes and sell it to my Gen Z friends. Oh my goodness. So I'm yeah. not a millennial. I love the fact that you were too mm. old. Yeah. Being called a millennial. To be talking yeah. to younger people. That's right. It's and, really funny. But nothing is changing in terms of the content. And then I think from a third thing, like the business had never actually had a full brand strategy. So we re redesigned like the brand My Millennial Money. 
I did the logo on my iPhone with an app, sent it to a designer. He cleaned it up, but we rebuilt the whole brand. Like, what are we about? What's our vibe? All that stuff. And that's, you know, we've got the spin-off shows. Uh, this is property. Uh, this is work. This is investing. We've got retire right. So within all that of me talking two episodes a week on a podcast, you know, I've got two hours of hard work that I have to do a week. I'm running a business in the background and we're also a production house and do all our other podcasts. So it's been fun. I actually like the business side of it more than the talking on a microphone a couple of times a week. So this is where it gets super interesting. And I love the fact that you have a spinoff podcast because it Mm. lends itself immediately to the next question, which is what are people asking you Mm. about? What are they coming to you with questions about it? You know, maybe it started with basic budgeting. Mm. What are you getting from people? Every single year, except last year, because I couldn't be bothered um, getting an insight into my personality, we would survey the audience and do what, what I call a census because I need to know who I'm talking to. And as a starting point, and one of the reasons I didn't do it last year was I didn't have the capacity with a few things on and I didn't feel that it had changed enough to redo a census, Uh, but we'll do it again this year. But when I pick up a microphone, the average listener age is 30. The audience is about 70% female. And the median income is a hundred grand and, you know, full-time worker, professional. So that's who I'm talking with. Every time I pick up a microphone, I'm talking with a young professional who's got a really good income. So the main thing that my audience is asking, and this isn't to do with the the profile of a 30-year-old woman, the last four or five years, the number one topic people want to do is a learn how to invest. The number one topic. And it's fascinating because it's the same story of when people were coming into my financial advice business and they would be like, hey, we want advice, we want to invest. And I was like, well, let's just review everything and see if you're ready to actually invest first. Uh, So it kind of circles back around. And that's why I teach uh, what I call the sound financial house. And if you want me to go through that for your listeners. Yeah, please do. Yeah. I mean, this is what I what I love so much about this is, as we were discussing, like advice is a very linear process and a very rigid regulatory framework. And so you do end up sort of overbaking a lot of things. Yeah. Partly to demonstrate value, I think, to clients. And most financial planners want clients already to be pretty wealthy yes. before they come. That's right. Because otherwise it's really hard to demonstrate any value. As you say, I can give you an $80 budgeting plan and that's probably 90% of what you need. You probably need some insurance, but you didn't come for that. That sucks. No, that's right. (laughs) And and you need some estate planning, but that also wasn't what you were thinking about. And so it's been one of the most extraordinary parts about moving into sort of self-directed world in my case is going the vast majority of people aren't wealthy enough to need or want, you know, they think they want advice, Mm. they're not wealthy enough to need it. Yeah. And they need a sound financial house. So yeah, I wasn't calling it that, but if you are, that's great. What do you what do you tell people to do in that space? Well, I think first and foremost, because I do have an advice background and I am so pro-advice for the Australian population with the advocacy work that I did with the AFA, now the Financial Advice Association of Australia, and you know, 
lobbying government to make it more affordable for clients and people and all that stuff. I basically just want to gift wrap people so they can then go to an advisor. Because if you're an advisor listening to this and you had a client walk in with no consumer debt, with a good cash flow system, they might have their estate plan sorted and they can categorically say, hey, we've got a spare $500 a month. Let's dance. It'd be like, sweet, we can actually hit the ground running. But for me, it was around the premise of when you're building a house, you always do the foundations first and they're always boring. They might be a little bit expensive, but we know the stronger the foundations, the more longevity you'll get out of that house. So in my sound financial house, the diagram has four foundations. The first foundation is a spending plan or budget, whatever you want to call it. I don't like the word budget because it's restrictive. I like spending plan. The second foundation is cashed up and debt-free. So we're getting rid of all consumer debt. We're having an emergency fund. The third foundation is a protection plan, so our life and our income insurances. And the fourth foundation is uh, wills and estate plan. So the slab of the house originally was superannuation, but I've added uh, your career to the slab of the house because some people might want to start investing lots of money, which is awesome. I want everyone to invest lots of money. But if they've just left university, we've got to focus our career because we are the the biggest asset in our life. We are an annuity and you've really got to make sure your career is on track. And then the walls of the house are your lifestyle goals. So you might want to start a business, you want to travel, you might want to save for your first home, pay off a mortgage. Everyone's got lifestyle goals. And then investing for the future is the top of the house. So the roof. So we don't build a house with the roof first. A lot of people will be like, well, wouldn't you put investing at the bottom? Because that's, I'm like, no, no, this is how we build a house. <laughs> like you could have investing as your bedrock, sure. But conceptually, when you build a house, you want good foundations in the money world. I believe, yeah, the foundations that I've talked about. Because realistically, if you nail foundation one with your spending plan and factor in your lifestyle goals, you will 100% categorically know that we have X amount per month left over to invest for the future. Because how many times have you heard people, they start to invest and it's all good and you have got a good investing account. Oh, and then Rego's due. And then I've got to sell down $1,000. Oh, this is due. And once money's committed to investing and investments, we want them to stay committed for the long term. Yeah, 100%. And I think also having heard from primarily rather than working with, but heard from like younger investors when they're really young, a lot of the investing is highly speculative. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so there's, there is often a scenario where, you know, the money they were putting away is not what it was a little mm. bit later. You know, yeah. Buying ETFs and so on, fine. But uh, but some of it when they're sort of looking for that really, really high growth option, if they haven't built the platform yet, particularly the insurance, and I know we bang on about mm. it, uh, and I've mentioned it on this podcast before, I don't think the person in question would be upset about it. Uh, a friend of ours lost her husband recently. She has a mm. three-year-old and a five-year-old mm. um, and thankfully was insured to the eyeballs and has said quite openly, you know, I'm going to be the person that the insurer now uses as their case study because... Yeah you know, this stuff is so important and it doesn't mm. feel important when you're young, but then you see a couple of heartbreaking tragedies and realize that as much as it's boring, it's worth doing, right? Absolutely. 
So it's just housekeeping. And, you know, when you're building a house, the foundations could take weeks or months, depending, you know, if you're building near a coastline and the sand around, well, far out those foundations, this is going to take a while. But once they're done, they are done. Now, if someone's like, well, I've got a little bit of consumer debt and I don't have my insurances, I'm like, sure, if you want to get an investing app and do $10 a week, knock yourself out, get in the game. But we're not investing large amounts while we're trying to sort our act out. That's what I think. No, I love it. I love Mm. that you got superannuation right down the bottom as well, right in there as your foundation, all the boring stuff. Yeah, (laughs) everyone has a super account. So everyone already is a long-term investor. So can you learn a bit more about your super account before you even like commit other money anywhere? This is so true. I remember speaking to a journalist many years ago and he was super, super young. Mm. I'm really young guy, early 20s for sure. And, uh, and I was trying to explain superannuation and he was a bit, you know, oh God, I've got to do this story, but I don't want to. Mm. I remember saying, how much have you got in your super account? And he was like, oh, I don't know. And mm. I said, it'd be a few thousand though, right? And I, he was mm. like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, do you have a few thousand anywhere else in your life? And he was like, no. It's like, maybe mm. you should worry about the few thousand then, right? Like, at least you can do something with that. Don't ignore it. That's mad. Well, I, I said that to a young client once. He had $80,000 in his super. I think he was 30. So like good income, you know, obviously strong account balance. And I go, oh, what, what about your super? And he's like, oh, it, yeah, I don't know. It's not really my money. So I don't really worry about it. I'm like, hang on, show me your statement. I'm like, if this just said, Mr. Michael Smith or whatever your name is, in your own name, you'd pay attention. <laughs> it's like the exact same thing. It is your money. And that's why I think the the stuff that we're doing with the podcasts and financial literacy, it is getting things to be more accessible around the uh, education around money. I think it's fabulous. And the fact that people can kind of tune in anytime and mm. pick up ideas and so on, they don't need this sort of very intimidating process of going and getting formal advice, which probably wouldn't be appropriate for a lot of them anyway. Yeah. So most basic question, mm-hmm. investing, you're like, get back to basics, do all of the things that yeah. need to be done. Tell us about some of the more interesting questions. What what has led you to kind of branch out from investing and, and finance 101? Yeah, so. One thing I picked up in 2020, or even a little bit before end of 19, before COVID was a thing, was the next big thing for people in their 20s and 30s would be their career. And we started seeing more questions around, oh, I've got this job, should I take this? And options, and we know the unemployment rate is basically nothing at the moment, and it's a really interesting time in career land. I really thought the next frontier for young people were their careers. So that's when we started the career podcast. We've got a HR professional who who does that. We've now renamed that to a podcast that's now called This Is Work. And what I did as well, so my book, Sort Your Money Out, I wrote a prequel to that book called Sort Your Career Out with Shelley Johnson, my co-author, around that premise of the best investment you can make as a younger person is in the person that's in your mirror. The categorical best thing you can ever do because if you, I'll I'll tell you a thought exercise, Gemma. I don't know if I've told you this before, but we'll share it for your listeners. If someone had a mini share portfolio of $20,000, right? And they wanted to grow that, 
to $30,000 in one year, that would mean that that portfolio would need a 50% return, right? Right. Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Now, in the ordinary course of investing, you do not want to be hanging out where with your money where 50% returns are possible <laughs> because the risk, it's up there with roulette and lottery tickets, right? So the lion's share of your wealth, you don't want to have invested for the chance to get a 50% return in 12 months. Yeah, it's so, not all NVIDIA, right? That's right. So what I say is for a young person, well, what if you're on $60,000 per year and you focused on your career and got a pay rise of ten dollars or $15,000, that return that you're getting in your life is, you know, most people, when they get a pay rise, they never go backwards. That's number one. Number two, you're not hanging out in a high risk area that you could risk a lot of things to get that, you know, $10,000, $20,000 return. So if you focus on your career and actually invest in yourself, get skilled up, practice networking and all that stuff, that extra 10 grand a year from your career is an ongoing annuity as long as you're working. So I wanted to position the career book and we talk about taking risks in the career book. We talk about, you know, even the practical negotiation stuff and all that stuff. Um, so that's kind of what I saw as the next big theme for young people. And yeah, this is work. The podcast is just, it's going bananas because it's such a, a need out there in, uh, in the land of work and careers. It's so true. And mm. it's fascinating, particularly being a little bit older than you are, but you look at yourself and people, you know, and the people who've made good decisions professionally and the people who've made missteps for one reason or another, sometimes nothing to do with them, bad luck, all sorts of things, but how critical those early career decisions can be. Uh, I know someone quite well who makes like eye-watering money. Like if you're mm. into into money, money, mm. <laughs> this is money, money. Uh, no longer works in Australia. Um, hasn't for for most of their career. Um, remember many years ago, let's say twenty years ago, said mm. oh it was a rough year for bonuses, and someone said oh only a million dollars, and said not that bad. Oh, uh, <laughs> to give you an idea, that was a <laughs> yeah. couple of decades ago. So that kind of money, um, honestly, all came from about two early decisions in terms mm. of career, which is getting into the right place at the right time, getting on board with the, the sort of right team within a particular business, and that was it. Mm. It just took off. Yep. It was extraordinary. Obviously a highly capable person, right? Not everybody's going to get that opportunity set. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not just good luck for sure, but it was fascinating to see someone be that successful, not born into wealth, not you know, mm. uh, not mm. taken under the wing of a family friend or any of that sort of business. This is someone who got there largely on their own merit, but also off the back of a couple of really good decisions very, very early on, early mm. 20s. Yeah. And you get those, you know, we all talk about compounding returns with investing. You get that in real life with your pursuits as well, whether it is learning guitar from an early age in your late teens or whether getting into your passion and your career in your early 20s and just getting those compounding returns. And then also having to deal with, you know, challenges and things that come along later on as well, which is quite, quite fascinating how people, you know, adapt midlife, which we see a fair bit of. Mm. 
So you've had an extraordinary range of guests on your podcast. I Mm. have obviously listened to many and I've had a look also at your website. Some I seem to have missed, you know, not just uh, the narrow range of people that you might imagine. Like it's pretty extraordinary. Have you learned anything particularly fascinating? Was there anyone you particularly loved listening to or talking with? I loved talking with the philosopher Peter Singer. Uh, who wrote the book, The Life You Can Save, because I'm really big on giving and generosity as part of our financial uh, spending and whatnot, because there's always people worse off than we are. And I think it's a a good thing to be generous. And so it was always interesting talking um, to a philosopher, uh, because you can just chew the fat and talk about anything. And I don't know, like, to be honest, some of the most moving people that I've talked to are just everyday listeners, and people have gone through hell and back and have been standing still. Like that's that's the goal. I get to talk to listeners all the time. And in terms of making content, like I had the biggest personal finance dude in America, Dave Ramsey, on my show a few years ago. Like he's, I think, number two or number one most highly paid popular talkback radio personality in America. Like every episode that he does every show, like over 20 million people listen. Like it's wild. Had Dave Ramsey on the podcast, chatted. It was awesome. It was a life goal of mine. Really the only episode he's ever done in Australia. But people really didn't care where if I did an episode, how to buy your first home sooner, that would be more popular because that's what people need. So that's what I've learned. You've just got to see what the listeners actually are after. And I do a lot of user-generated content from the Facebook group and talk about uh, what people are going through, what people want to hear about. But I've also resolved that I'm not your guru. I'm just facilitating a conversation and I'll give my advice. I'll give my practical thoughts and wisdom. If someone disagrees with me, with me, that's okay. Um, but we're having this engaging discussion. And I think that's the the whole thing. Like I am not your guru, as Tony Robbins would say. I'm just here because everyone's like, oh, Glenn, Thanks so much um, for helping. And someone came up to me in a cafe the other day and like, oh, Glenn, I've done the Glenn James spending plan and it's changed my life. And I'm like, hey, thanks so much. But you did that. I just guided you. Like I gave you the tools. I was just the personal trainer to say, here are the dumbbells and encouraged you. I was the coach walking beside the pool while you were doing all the laps. You did all the work. So that's what I've kind of resolved that I am. I'm just a a facilitator of conversations. And I really wanted to, when we started the podcast, I wanted to do entertainment and infotainment basically. And we started in the comedy section because there was three of us at the time when we started and it was a lot more loose and lighthearted than it is now. But because I'm like, well, the type of listener that I want might not ordinarily ordinarily go to the business section and look up money podcast, but they might go to comedy and scroll through and say, Oh, money. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I do want to learn about money. I'll have a listen. So that's kind of, I've always wanted to create infotainment and I've always wanted to at least do two of three things. Every time I pick up a microphone, add value, have fun and be practical. And if I can get two of those or at least one at the very least, Uh, I think I've done a good job in creating content. Can I please everyone? Absolutely not. And there's plenty of podcasts to listen to. You might listen to this now and go, well, thanks for having 
having Glenn on the show, Gemma, I know I don't need to try his episode now because he's a wild unit. Uh, but yeah, I've just got to do what I do for my community. And um, that's all I really care about doing content for my community and growing the core kind of 20% super fan of my community. So one question, you talked mm-hmm. about you know, how to own your own home sooner, right? As an mm-hmm. incredible topic that everyone mm-hmm. would be interested in. And people do, you know, they're looking for guidance. Mm. Very safe place to provide it. And they're looking for something beyond a book. I know you've written a book, but, you know, mm. sometimes you can read the book and go, yes, but what about these other things and these slight complexities in my situation yep. and so on? Tell me about the mistakes that people make. Do people come to you going, I am in this situation? Because it is quite extraordinary some of the insight you get into people's situations, particularly when you're an advisor, but also when people come up to you. Uh, I get this sometimes, but, yeah, people come up to you, I've got this situation, how do I deal with it? What are the mistakes that you see most frequently? I think the mistakes that I see most frequently are people putting the cart before the horse, uh, which we've talked about with that investing thing. It's like, why are you investing $150 a month when you've got a personal loan from a holiday you took three years ago? Like, what are we doing here? Like that type of bread and butter personal finance mistakes. One of the funniest, and it's it's kind of like in a, you know, if a gauge was going around and it started at 12 o'clock serious and then it got more, uh, it started at funny and then it got more serious, like it kind of flicked back on itself and it's funny and like this is how crazy the story is. Someone wrote in and was like, Hey, Glenn, I've got a Prada bag worth $11,000 that I bought on a credit card. Um, my car broke, something came up with my car. What do I do? Um, and it's like, whoa. Like, and this is the problem with social media, right? Like, why does a young woman, maybe 25 years old, who's probably on a sub $70,000 wage at the time, have a credit card for an $11,000 Prada or Chanel or Gucci bag. Like this is the, the wild stuff that's out there. And people believe the lie that they need to spend lots of money on crap to impress people and feel good. Had a coffee the other day with someone um, who's in my extended family. He's under 30, probably earns 70, maybe 80 max talking about, oh, well, yeah, we're thinking about buying a uh, a new Ford Everest and it's 98 grand. I'm like, on what planet are we living on? Like, that's way too much car for your income. Like maybe 30 grand max and maybe not brand new. I don't know, going out on a limb here. And this is why the middle class, and it's probably not categorical why the middle class struggles. There's lots of other issues and we could talk about tax reform for days, Gemma. Uh, but why are we spending our year's worth of salary uh, on assets that are going down in value? Like why are we buying cars worth a hundred grand when we don't even earn a hundred grand a year? Like this is just wild, blows my mind. I, I have a question about this mm. uh, and you're getting intel from listeners all the time. Mm. So everyone in the world has a fancier car than we do, not a car person, so that helps mm. a lot. Uh, I just, I don't care. Mm. <laughs> I don't care if my car looks like rubbish. Our last car was 14 years old and then it like was very close to dying so we got a new one. Yeah. Uh, and we bought what was available because it was post-COVID. 
yeah. supply chain issues and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. But I look at all the fancy cars and I casually said to my husband, or oh, because he was kind of like, how come everyone's got a really nice car? And I was like, well, they obviously make more money than we do and that's just, you know, offhand comment. And he was mm. like, I don't think so. I think they're just more comfortable with debt than you are. Absolutely. And I was like, is it? <laughs> so it's me. I I don't like the debt. I don't want I don't want the fancy car and I don't like the debt. Is that what it is? Yeah, and that's the same with me. Like I've not the most expensive car I bought was $42,000. It was secondhand and I paid cash. Now, we can go down that rabbit hole of well, would it have been better to do a car loan over 4 years, pay 4% interest and get rid of it? maybe on paper, you know, opportunity cost of not having that 40 grand invested. But this is where some people can't compute the emotional psychological vibe of personal finance. The fact that Glenn James doesn't get car loans anymore, I I have in previous lives, is I know that there is more temptation to spend more when I don't have to personally transfer an amount of cash from my bank account. So it kind of trumps the whole, well, you should have just invested the 40 grand, got 9%, paid four and a half on interest, ta-da. Yes, but if you go down that road and I was going to borrow for a car, I probably would have spent more. So for me being a spender by nature, I need guardrails in my life. And one of the guardrails is anytime I buy a car, I save up and pay cash. This is an interesting one and we, you're right, we can go down a rabbit hole on cars. It's not necessarily about cars specifically, like $11,000 for a handbag is pretty wow. Although yeah, that's a bit ridiculous. $95,000 for cars is also a bit wow. Hmm. You buy a lot of handbags. Hmm. Uh- <laughs> well, but this is the thing, Gemma. It's like you do you, but I know categorically if someone wasn't spending the 100 grand on cars or 10 grand on handbags because that's a – that gets into a lifestyle habit and lifestyle spending behaviors. You can pair notes with someone who didn't buy those things in 15 or 20 years time, just compare the notes. I know who's going to have more money. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty straightforward calculation. <laughs> yeah, So it's not like don't buy an $11,000 Prada bag. If you do maybe pay cash for it going out on. A oh, limb. so true. Yeah. That was the credit card aspect as well. Yeah. So, so your comment yeah. about guardrails, right? I have to ask yeah. you about this. So you've been talking to all of these people for a really mm. long time. You do, as you say, sort of have the community aspect where people are throwing their ideas at you, but you're also talking to professionals, including ones in the US and here and all sorts of different people. What have you learned from a personal perspective? What do you do now? Like you said, you're a spender. How yep. does that play out? Yeah. So number one, part of the Glenn James spending plan, I did kind of create it, um, to help me. So I've got a cash hub account that's with a separate bank. My salary goes into that cash hub. All my bills go out of that. That bank app isn't on my phone. The card isn't on Apple Pay. There's no card in my wallet. I've just got a weekly spend account with another bank that I transfer a small amount over to each week. That's for food, fuel, entertainment, going out, groceries. Um, So I just pay myself weekly. And what that does, it gives the spender in me guardrails that I'm not spending more than X a week. And I can use that money without using my brain. Um, I've resolved in my life, if I want to go out for dinner the night before payday and spend X amount on dinner, I'm happy to have cereal for dinner the next night because 
that's the bet I've made and I'm happy to do that. So it gives the spenders guardrails, but conversely, it's given a lot of savers permission to spend because if you're a hectic saver, you sometimes have guilt associated with your spending, like you don't have permission to be spending money and enjoying life. So that's one guardrail with some practical spending. Uh, Another guardrail that I have, I call it the 1% rule. It's a little bit convoluted, but go with me. If, for example, you earned 80 grand a year, 1% of 80 grand is $800. Don't spend more than $800 in one go without sleeping on it. Now, you might say, "Mm, that's a lot anyway. Pick a number. I don't spend more than $100 without sleeping on it. So that's been another good guardrail for me as a spender. Um, Because I am a spender by nature, if money walks into my life, it grows legs really fast. So I've had to automate my investing. I've had to automate my savings. I've got my emergency fund with a bank that's so hard and annoying to log into. I just never, like, I just never touch it. Um, So I've really tapped into that behavioral out of sight, out of mind, automated. Uh, Every Wednesday, my automatic trades happen into ETFs. Don't do individual stocks. I'm just as simple as possible. Get Glenn's mitts away from anything because if he gets involved, he wrecks it. I love that. So all of this time you've spent learning the more complex aspects of finance, you're running a business, all of those things, and then you go, right, that's it. I have a meaningful chance that I'm going to do stupid things and I'm going to take all of the control out of my own hands. Well, but that's it. Like if you win the behavior side of anything, you win anything. You win the behavior side of healthy eating, you win health. You win the behavior side of managing money, you win money. Simple. I absolutely love that. So let's Follow up with one sort of final question Mm. then about the people that you talk to and listen to at the same time. Mm. And it'd be very interesting to see what your feedback is. So the one thing, and I've mentioned it already, is that having worked in advice for a long time where you're sort of waiting to people are at a certain level in their lives where they need advice anyway, and it's quite paternalistic, it's very come to me, hand over everything you have, Mm. give me all your information, which a lot of people are really uncomfortable about, but we're going to make you do it anyway, because legally we don't have a lot of protection if we don't have all your information. And then we're going to give you a plan, which you must follow. Like it's an interesting, it's an interesting model works super Mm. well for some people, not so much for Mm. others, but going to uh, NAB trade where 99% of the clients are doing it themselves, right, and making their Mm. own decisions about what they invest in and how. And I am fascinated by how careful and intelligent people are when they're managing their own money effectively. Mm. The decisions people make are way less stupid and inept than the media and various other places would give them credit for. That's what I've learned. Yeah. Similar thoughts? Oh, I don't know. Like I would assume that the average NAB trade investor may be a lot older. Is that a, a good assumption? They've gotten younger over the last few years, but yes, probably. So I think there's a couple of things at play here. So number one, if you remember 20 years ago, I couldn't log on and buy $1,000 worth of an ETF. It had to be single stocks. And the culture was buy shares, buy shares, buy shares. But now if we fast forward to um, ETFs and 
really easy access to broad-based indexes, I think a lot of, and particularly a lot of my teaching, is I'm okay with market returns. Like I'm actually okay with ASX 200 return. I'm okay with the S&P 500 return, right? So I've set expectations in my life that, and it's, it is a bit philosophical, when I invest money for the future, I'm not investing to get the best return possible. In my life, I am parking money that I don't need today that will have a better chance to beat cash and inflation over the long term. Like that's my investment strategy. So I don't need to chase the high returns and trade. Back to the behavioral thing, if I start doing individual stocks, I sometimes might get confused and log into Sportsbet or my brokerage account. Like they look the same to me. <laughs> Not that I use Sportsbet. So for me, there is a proclivity to want to gamify or gamify whatever they say things to get that dopamine hit and all that. Now, I would say I won't put more than 10% of my total portfolio into anything speculative or single stocks. I've got some money in some startups that have been of personal interest. I've done IPOs and all that. But the lion's share of my own investing and how I teach is invest in broad market indexes. You're not a professional fund manager. You don't know how to value companies. And if you just look, Gemma, like what if five years ago, you love shopping at Coles? And you're like, oh, I'm just going to buy Coles shares. I love shopping there. What if five years down the track, you picked the wrong supermarket? Woolworths was, was a better investment. Like, so for me, just buy the market. You don't know how to assess stocks. You, you're a marketing professional by day. You're a mechanic by day. You, you're a dentist by day. You're parking money for the long term with investing. Outsource it to a broad market index. Uh, if you do have some personal interest, sure, buy some individual stocks, but just temper that maybe 10% of your total portfolio just to keep you in the game. But also if you get flushed, you're not flushing your whole portfolio. So, Glenn, slightly different views then on on the individuals that you talk to, but then, as you say, ours are a little more mature. And ETFs, yes. as you say, have changed everything. I think it's extraordinary how wonderful but, it is for people who just want to invest and not have to make difficult decisions. I think it's great. Yeah, and I think a lot of your uh, investors, they've, and and that's the you know you buy good companies, you'll do good. Like that's pretty basic, but. If it's not of personal interest to you, if you're not reading AGM minutes, if you're not doing the work, what are you doing? Focus time on building your career and earning more money that you can invest, trying to get rich buying shares individually. So that's that's the whole thing. I'm not against buying individual shares, but I teach my listeners to focus on living life and building a career they love and just throwing money into the market on the side with a you know, portfolio in a box, set and forget, all that stuff, low-cost index. That's very cool. So any final suggestions or tips mm. for the very broad range of people with their complex needs who might be listening mm. to this today? Well, I think it goes back to if something is working for you, you can tell everyone to shut up and go away. Now that is whether it is oh, I wash my car this way or I walk my dog that way or I exercise this way 
or I manage my money or I invest this way. If it is working for you and your household, who cares what anyone else says? Like, ignore everything that's come out of my mouth over the last 25, 30 minutes. Like, because what you're doing is working. I would just caution, don't blindly think that because I can open an investment app and start trading on NAB Trade tomorrow, that you're a sophisticated investor if it's your first rodeo, because you will make some mistakes. I made investing mistakes in my book, Sort Your Money Out. I do an autopsy of my first ever investment. And I lost, I think, almost 50% because the investment that I chose had all the hallmarks of a bad investment, like every single risk that was there. And I learned from it. But I'm saying now, because we do have access to ETFs, broad market ETFs, we do have access to, you know, and this is the whole thing, like, what is a benchmark? Well, it it doesn't really matter because if you're like ethical investing, we'll forget the Aussie benchmark anyway, because you're not ever going to invest in it. Anyway, sidebar, um, all that to say, if you hang your hat on something, hang your hat on it, but don't be under the illusion that you are a sophisticated investor when you're not. And that's probably me talking to me. I focus on shoveling money into my portfolio rather than picking individual stocks. It's a, uh, it's a strategy that's working for a lot of people. And I think there's enormous merit in getting people to think more about it. Glenn, people are definitely going to want to follow up on this conversation. Where do they go to find your podcast and other content? Assuming, of course, that they haven't found it already. Yeah, so you can search This Is Money uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, we've got an Instagram account, This Is Money. And we've also got a Facebook group called This Is Money. And, you know, you, you'll find the spinoffs. This is investing. This is property. This is work all the good things. If you're over 55 and you're interested in retirement planning, we've got a retirement podcast called Retire Right, which will be the uh, biggest and the most mainstream personal finance podcast in Australia uh, this year because not, not many people are doing it uh, to the level that we're doing it. Uh, so yeah, Retire Right could be an option if you want to learn a bit more of the strategy stuff. And we've talked about this before, Gemma, like when it comes to quote unquote financial advice, Post 50, post 55 are the years where strategy matters. Yeah, 100%. And you can certainly do a lot to make your strategies more effective if you start earlier. Mm. But if you're not all across the opportunity set that's available to you in your 50s, mm. maybe think about it now. <laughs> and that's one way to do it. Yes. Glenn James from This Is Money, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gemma. I'll see you and uh, your listeners another time. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We don't have a Facebook group. We're not good at that kind of thing, but we do get fantastic feedback and we love getting your questions. If you email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au, I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.